Please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We are looking at the first chapter of Habakkuk, right after Nahum and right before Zephaniah. I pronounce it Habakkuk. Some people have said Habakkuk, but we're going to go with Habakkuk. And again, we're looking at the first chapter here. This is one of my favorite Old Testament books. It's one that I truly enjoy reading and reflecting upon. This is the book uh, where Paul is quoting in the book of Romans, where the just shall live by faith. That quotation is taken from Habakkuk. This is a book that is very timely. It is a book that the prophet expresses um, some of the sorrow and questions that often come to our minds as we look over our own country and our own nation with our own countrymen, wondering where God is. We see so many things happening and we, we wonder that. God, where are you in this? Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you changing something? Why is this continuing, in our perspective, why does it continue to get worse instead of better? Oh, Lord, heal our land. Bring revival. We we pray a number of different things because we see the injustice in our land. We see evil in our land. Well, Habakkuk is living in a time in which Judah is experiencing a very similar situation. There is injustice in the land. The law of God is relaxed. They're no longer adhering to the law. It's no longer the foundation and the standard for them. Instead, they seem to be going their own way. There is oppression. There is violence. There is much going on among God's covenant people. That's the thing. This isn't just a pagan nation in which you would expect these things. This is God's covenant people. The ones to whom God had truly revealed himself to. Given his covenants, given his statutes, given his law. The ones that he had delivered from Egypt. The ones that he had delivered from many of their enemies throughout the history of their time in the land up to this point. Whenever they were unfaithful, God would allow the Moabites to come in or the Ammonites to come in. And then he would deliver them. We already know at this particular time that the northern kingdom is gone at the time of Habakkuk. He's, he's in the southern kingdom. He's in Judah. This is probably around 609, 610, right in this area perhaps. It's estimated. The northern kingdom was already taken by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The very... Same things that the northern kingdom was was doing are things now that Judah is doing. Now, when you're looking back in the history of of Israel and Judah, the kingdom was united, of course, under David or under Saul, under David, under Solomon. The kingdom split under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam takes the southern kingdom. Jeroboam the first takes the northern kingdom. 
There, there are two places in the northern kingdom in which Israel, and the northern kingdom is known as Israel, then Judah. So the northern kingdom of Israel had two particular places that they would go and offer sacrifices in which they were committing idolatry. All of the kings of the northern kingdom were all evil. There is not one in which you find the Lord saying, this one did good in the sight of the Lord. They're all evil. But Judah, there was hope for Judah. There was uh, those that were in Judah. They were going to the place that God had appointed. They were offering sacrifices to the Lord himself. They weren't committing idolatry. There were evil kings in Judah, and then there were those that did good in the sight of the Lord. You had a great revival under Josiah. You got Hezekiah, who was a very faithful king. You, interestingly, you had uh, one of the most wicked kings in Judah, Manasseh, uh, who ended up coming to the Lord later in his life after all the terrible things that occurred under his reign. But there was good and bad. Well, coming to the end of the southern kingdom, the last three kings, specifically, all did evil in the sight of the Lord. There are, again, uh, numerous things that are going on, injustice, oppression, violence among the people of Judah. And so as Habakkuk is getting ready to pen his, his book here, one of the one of the unique things about Habakkuk is he's really not speaking on behalf of the Lord to the people, as many of the other prophets do. Instead, the prophet is coming before the Lord on behalf of the people. And what the Lord says to him after he cries out to the Lord is, is one that, as the Lord says, you're going to be astonished by this. Because you're not going to think that this is the way that it should be. But what a great lesson that there is in understanding that God doesn't always work in the way that we pray that he will work. We have certain prescriptions that we like to put upon the Lord and we like to say, Oh Lord, heal our land, but heal it in this way. This is how we, this is how we want it. So as we are praying to you and we are crying out to you, just follow the plan that we have which is going to be more painless, less suffering. This would be great if you just cause a big revival and let that be the answer. Well, sometimes that's not the answer. And because of the answer that the prophet gives, that's probably one of the reasons why he opens this, this book in the way that he does. He's going to open it, and depending on the translation you have, it says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. And the word oracle here means the burden. This is the burden of Habakkuk. And it is the burden because of the judgments that are getting ready to come upon the covenant people of God. There are times in which the righteous will suffer along with the unrighteous as God chastises his people, as God chastises a nation. But the very thing that the righteous are called to do even in such circumstances is, just as we read uh, the last Lord's Day in, in Romans, or a couple weeks ago rather, that the just will live by faith. The righteous one will live by faith, and that's where we have to get to. Regardless of how the Lord acts, how he works, we have to live by faith. Now there's some great lessons to learn here. One, again, is that sometimes it seems that God is silent. As we are praying and crying out to him, we wonder where he's at. And it seems all we hear 
is, is silence. But the thing that we also learn from this is that God is always working. And he will work in such a way that will bring him the most glory that is in accordance with his divine will, not ours. And he will bring to pass what he intends. Even using an ungodly people to do it. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. As we read the first chapter of Habakkuk, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. And rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. They will be, le- they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they, not, <clears throat> will they therefore empty their net and, continue, and continually slay nations without sparing? Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for what we learn here. Let our hearts be encouraged that our hearts be comforted, that our hearts be strengthened as we work our way through this passage, understanding that the things that we now endure, mildly endure, are things that the people of God have endured much earlier than us and and, and endured even more severely. But, O Lord, their hope was you. Their strength was you. Their refuge was you. And I pray, Father, that as we work our way through this, that our hearts 
Father, we'll, we'll be confident in you and in your working and that we would be even more desirous, Father, and, and resolved to live by faith and to honor you and not fall into despair. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so again, <clears throat> this book begins, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Really, you find the prophet here praying. As he is praying unto the Lord, he's, he's not just trying to come before the Lord and just be complaining. He is taking his burden to the Lord. He is taking you know, the, all the things that he's seeing, the pain and the suffering, and where's the place that he's running to? He's running to the Lord. He's running to the one who can help. He's, one, he's running to the one who can act and bring about change. He has a particular idea in his mind, it seems, as far as what he's praying for and how he believes the Lord should act in this. And so this is, a, this is genuine and heartfelt. He's coming before the Lord on behalf of the righteous who are suffering in the nation. And they're suffering because of the wicked. The wicked have surrounded them. They're, they're pressing in on them. He describes that there is no justice. You know, when you, when you read through the, the law of God, the, one of the very things that is, that is constantly emphasized is justice. Do justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, etc. Let the punishment fit the crime. Do right by each other. Don't oppress the alien. Don't oppress uh, the stranger. Don't oppress the wicked, or excuse me, the widow and the orphan. Do justice. Do right by each other. That is one of the very things that is emphasized. And it seems as if the people at some point, perhaps because of the, the wickedness of the king and leading the nation, as the king is leading the nation and he has forsaken the Lord, so perhaps even those who are the, the religious leaders themselves are forsaking the Lord. And this seems to be a situation that has been for a while. This isn't just happening. This is the prophet, no, no doubt, has come, the prophet has probably come before the Lord on a number of occasions, crying out on behalf of his countrymen, on behalf of the nation, the covenant nation of God. But all he hears, it seems, is, is silence. He asks the question, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? It's very similar to how David prayed during his time in which he was enduring a, a very trying, uh, a trying point in his life that just seemed to go on and on and on. And, and maybe there was no relief for a while. David prayed in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. This was David's prayer. 
We don't know at what point that occurred in David's life. There were many, many trials that he endured, some on account of his own actions. But here is Habakkuk, and he's crying out on behalf of the people. He's crying out on behalf of the righteous, and, and the Lord's not doing anything. There's no help given. Every day there is more injustice. Every day there is more violence. There is more oppression. There is more contention. You have the covenant people of God who should be unified around God's law, of God, of God being their God, they being his people. And now there is disunity because some want to go their own way and do their own thing. Perhaps they're at ease in Zion. Maybe they're not taking account of the Lord any longer. Any, whatever the situation was, the law of God was ignored and the justice was never upheld. And so the righteous and the unrighteous, there is much strife and contention. And so he prays to the Lord, I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. This is the situation, O Lord. You know what's going on, and we have cried to you day and night, and yet we're not hearing anything. It seems as if everything is continuing and perhaps even getting worse. Where are you? Why this is your people. Why aren't you doing anything? Are you going to forget us? How long do we have to endure this? Now, whatever it was that the prophet was thinking that God was going to do, God had something else in mind. Now, before we get into that, you know, there's a couple things to look at there when it comes to the prophet coming before the Lord in prayer as he is. One, he's coming before the Lord and casting all his care upon the Lord because the Lord does care for his people. And he recognizes even though there's silence, even though there doesn't seem to be any help, yet he does not forsake the Lord and say, well, you must not be doing anything. You must not care. You must not even be there. Instead, the fact that he is praying unto the Lord and he is crying out to the Lord is a demonstration of his faith. That he still has confidence in the Lord. His, his strength is in the Lord, his God. And that is where he is running to. He's not trying to do anything else but running to the Lord to act. We don't run away from prayer when things are going bad. When pain enters the life of a believer or in the lives of believers. As a whole, we don't run away from prayer. We run to God in prayer. You can do this. You can help. You're the only one who can. This situation is absolutely impossible for us to do anything about it. But nothing is impossible with you. And so even, even though the prophet is crying out, even though you see uh, almost somewhat of a despair on the, on the part of the prophet, like how long are you going to... How long are you going to do nothing? There, there's violence here. You have us who are trying to be faithful unto you, and our faithfulness to you is only being rewarded with more pain. Where are you?
even though there's nothing occurring as far as the Lord doing anything. And again, this is something that, that seems to have been going on. It isn't just something that just happened yesterday and the prophet is coming before the Lord. Uh, the, the literal rendering of that, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear, is how long have I cried so intensely to you? That's, that's a demonstrating that this is something that he has been doing. How long have I cried so intensely to you? And some of the internal problem as to what is occurring here, why the wickedness has come about as it did, is because of what he writes also in verse 4, that the law is ignored. The law is ineffective. This is an internal problem that seems to be manifesting itself, obviously, in the actions of the people. When the law of God is disregarded, when we set aside the law of God, what are we doing? We're setting aside him. Because the law is a reflection of the holiness and the righteousness of God. And when we say we don't like the law, we're setting it aside, then that is also an attack on the very character of God. Just as an FYI, that's probably one reason why Christians have to be very careful how we approach the law of God. If we say, yeah, I don't like the law of God. We might want to rethink what we're saying. Because the law is a reflection of the holiness of the one who gave it. And so the very fact that they are ignoring it, they're ignoring him. They're not treating him as holy. And perhaps over time that has been just a gradual thing. We started off well and there are times in which you see Israel being very, very faithful unto the Lord. And yet over time, perhaps as one of the other minor prophets said... You know, woe to you who are at ease in Zion because you're neglecting everything about the Lord. You're focused on yourselves. You're focused on your own houses and on your own crops. And you're neglecting the worship of God. And perhaps over time, well, God didn't do anything yet. So maybe we can go a little further. Maybe we can go a little further. And it's just a gradual thing. Slippery slope. So the prophet is crying out. Do something. And so we have the answer in verse 5. The Lord begins to speak back to the prophet. And how do we know that? Well, the the prophet has been speaking in verses 1 to 4. And all of a sudden, the verbs start to be plural in verses 5 to 11. It's as if the Lord is then saying, you, meaning you all. And he's speaking back to the prophet. But he's also including the rest of the people as well. So here's God's answer. Lord, all we see from you or all we hear from you is silence. And God is saying, I'm working. And you're not going to believe it. So he says, look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. Now, One thing that another had pointed out is is that the Lord is not saying to the prophet, Behold, I am going to do something, and it's way in the future, so you just make this a prophecy. He's saying to the prophet, I'm doing something in your days. I am working in your day. I am actively 
bringing about my will in your day? And he says, here's his answer. He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished and wonder. Why would he say that? Look among the nations. Is he telling the prophet, well, look among the nations and see other things that have been done? No. He is saying, look among the nations because there is where your answer is. Because that's who I'm bringing here. Look, among, as one, one writer said, the literal uh, rendering of this is, look about among the nations, or the meaning of it, rather. Look about among the nations, for it is thence that the terrible storm will burst that is about to come upon you. So he's telling the prophet, you want an answer, look among the nations. Because this is, this is what I'm doing in regards to your prayer. I'm bringing them to you. Be astonished. Wonder. Observe this. I'm doing something in your day. Your all's day. As the Lord is speaking to the prophet, he's probably, again, anticipating, of course, the prophet speaking on behalf or speaking to uh, those others that are suffering, the other righteous that are in the nation and that have no doubt been crying out to the Lord and been praying also. And the Lord is saying, I'm doing something in your, your all's day. And you're not going to believe it. You would not believe if you were told. And we know that's true because of the prophet's response when the Lord does tell him. But look at that, though. When you're seeing the sovereignty of God and all through the pages of Scripture, we are privileged to see the sovereignty of God at work, even in a time in which the people of God can't see anything. They can't see what God is doing at all. All they see is violence and oppression. The wicked are prospering. As the psalmist said in Psalm 73, I was, I was almost envious of them. Surely I have kept my religion in vain. I'm, cha I'm chastened all day. There's no pain in their death. Their, their body is fat. They have everything they need. They don't have any worries or any difficulties, it seems. In a time in which, again, in which it seems like there's silence from heaven. We don't see anything happening. It seems as if the people of God are being overcome by the wicked. God, are you at work? And he says... Behold, I am doing something in your day. Now, the literal of this is, I work a work in your days. This is present, present tense. He's like, I'm not going to do this. I'm already at work doing it. I've already been preparing this. I've got everything that needs to occur in play. Now, again, where you're seeing so, so many things that are in this book that are so timely for our own day, it's like we look at our own nation, and granted, our nation is not the covenant people of God. But it seems as if our nation started off well. Not perfect. Not by any means was it perfect. It seems as if it started off well. And then as it continues on, and it continues on, the faithfulness of the people in the nation begin to wane. New generations 
are raised up that don't know the Lord. Until you get to the point in which we are at now, and it seems, oh Lord, everything has gotten so much worse. Things are so bad. And it's the people in power that are, are the wicked. How did they make it there? We seem so insignificant now because what, what voice do we have except with each other? But the great hope and the great comfort is this, where the Lord says, I am doing something in your day. I'm doing something in your day. And this is true of every era of Christian history, that God is actively working. He is doing something. How can we be assured of that? Because God is the king of the nations. He's the rightful king. He's the one who rules and reigns over it all. And so everything that occurs is occurring by the sovereign hand of God, by the decreed will of God. Even, even the book of Proverbs, of texts that we, that we know, says this. Proverbs chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord has made everything for its, pur- its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. The wicked have a purpose. And everything that the wicked is doing is fulfilling the purposes of God. And what is God doing? Well, I don't know. How does all this fit together? I don't know. Is God going to cause a big revival to happen? I don't know. Can God cause a big revival to happen? Absolutely. Can our Lord change the hearts of any that he desires? Yes, he can. Can the Lord move so mightily within a nation as large as ours to bring about something like that? Yes, he can. Who can thwart his will when he intends to do something? Does that mean that that's the plan? Is that what God is doing? We don't know. God could rightfully be saying, in response to the apathy of my people and being at ease in Zion, I'm going to do something in your day, and perhaps this is a generation ago, I'm going to do something in your day that you're not going to believe I'm going to raise up the wicked in your nation. I'm going to raise up the unrighteous in your nation. What is that going to do? Probably what it is doing, which is putting the people of God in a position to act and to pray and to be concerned. To look back to the Lord and to pray to the Lord. Perhaps the Lord is raising up something else. 
We don't know. But regardless of what it is, we know it's for the purpose that is going to most glorify him. And this is not at all the, the response that the prophet was expecting, but here the Lord is. You would not believe it if you were told. And he goes into this description of the people that he is raising up. He's raising up the, the Chaldeans. He's raising up the Babylonians. This is your answer, Habakkuk. You want me to do something? I'm already at work. And here's the plan. So he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, that, f- that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Why does he say that? They don't have the law of God. They do what's right in their own eyes. And that is demonstrated in, 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 their, in their conquering of other nations and how they conquer. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. So here's some of the characteristics of this people that God is using. One, they're dreaded. They're feared. They're massive. This massive army. This massive army that doesn't believe that anything can stand in their way. They're arrogant. They're prideful. They're violent. They're merciless. And this is the answer? This is, this is the, the nation that, that you're going to bring up? How can he do that? Well, he does say this in verse 11. Then they will sweep through the... <clears throat> then they will sweep through like, like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God. Now here's something so interesting, or as the prophet said, so astonishing, is one that this is God who is raising up this people. This is the Lord and all his sovereignty as he controls the nations. The nations are his. He does with them as he pleases. He raises them up for the purpose of of bringing them against his own people, and yet at the very same time, he's going to hold them guilty for everything that they're doing. How does that work? Well, if we think about the unregenerate man, his heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The thought and the intent of his heart is evil continuously. His, his heart is deceitful, right? He's dead and trespasses in sin. By nature, he's a child of wrath. He has certain desires within him that are consistent with the very description that God just gave. They like power. They like, they, they like the idea of conquering another nation. It is their desire to do this. And so in, instead of the restraining hand of God keeping them at bay, instead the Lord raises them up. And he's going to put it in their hearts then to do the very thing that they want to do anyway, which is to come over here and conquer more land. So everything that they are doing is not against their will. God is not making them do this. It is consistent with their very nature. They are evil. They are wicked. 
This is what they desire to do. God is permitting them to do it. And in fact, he decreed for them to do it. And yet at the very same time, he's going to hold them guilty for it. He doesn't make them evil. By their very nature, they're evil. And so this is what they desire to do. And so they will be held guilty. Those whose strength is their God. So the Lord does say that. They're going to be held guilty for it, but this is what I'm doing. And then the prophet, upon hearing the answer to his prayer. Oh, Lord, how long are you going to wait? How long are we waiting? You're making me see violence every day. What are you doing? This is what I'm doing. Now, again, this prophet does have faith in the Lord, obviously. He's coming before the Lord in a time of great trial, in a time of great pain and suffering to the righteous. And even his first couple of statements here, you still see the faith that the prophet has in the Lord. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Think of that. He's saying, O Jehovah, O Yahweh, the existing one, my God, the Almighty, the Holy One. These names that he's using for the Lord. And he even refers to him as as his rock. He's our stability. He's our refuge. And so the prophet in this, and he is in this, this prayer He's still being reverent to the Lord, and he is any prayer is worshipful anyway because you're acknowledging the greatness of God in comparison to anything else. And so our Holy One, the pure one, our great God, the, the strong one, the mighty one, the one who exists from all eternity, you are the everlasting one, and we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge And you, O rock, have established them to correct. So he acknowledges this. This this army that is getting ready to come into the land is not going to wipe out the people of God. And actually, one theologian said that probably a better translation, instead of saying, are you not from everlasting, is are you not from ancient times? Now, granted, God is everlasting. He's from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, as the psalmist says. But to recount what he's saying there, you're from the ancient times. The ancient times recounting God's working within the covenant people of God. Looking back to see that this is the God who brought him out of Egypt. This is the the God who parted the waters. This is the, the God who delivered him from the Moabites and from the Ammonites and continually showed faithfulness to his people, never allowing the enemy to conquer the people and wipe them out. And so his hope is in this. Are you not... Our God from ancient times. You're our covenant God. You're our rock. And we will not die. You've appointed them to correct. You've appointed them to judge. Recognizing that God is is chastising his people. His people will continue to live on. And how can he be so assured? One, by looking back in Israel's history to see how God had performed this very thing a number of times, but also considering the promises of God. Surely the prophet understands the promises of God and the promises he made to Abraham, bringing the Messiah into the world. We have to exist because God made a promise. So we will not all die. For you, O Lord, are the faithful one. But you do see his faith shaken a little. 
he begins to question. Question what it is that, how, how, how it is that the Lord can do this. He says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look upon wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So, here's, here's what the prophet says. Oh, Lord, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. Now, this is actually one of the verses that has the idea that God cannot look upon sin. Well, if we're meaning that God cannot look upon sin with favor, then this is true. But how would that even make sense that God cannot look upon sin? He looks upon sin every day. He's looking upon a people in the world that he created, sinning every day. But if we understand it as the prophet is saying, your eyes are too pure to view evil, to approve evil, to look upon it with favor, meaning you can't be agreeing to this. You can't be approving of this. You're too pure for this. So he is, in one sense, questioning the character of God. How can you do that? And what is he saying? He's saying, yes, your people are wicked, but they're more wicked. They're more evil. So how can you use that nation, which is purely evil, continually evil, to judge your covenant people who at this particular time are wicked also? You know, that's, uh, as, as one theologian had pointed out, perhaps at some point in our own lives we have thought this, even as we see the degradation in our own nation, and we know the character of God, we know that God judges nations and God raises up nations, he brings nations down, and yet we think to ourselves, surely God would never do that to America because those other people are more unrighteous than us. Those other countries, those Purely atheistic countries, they're more evil, and yet they're still there. Surely, surely not America. And in one sense, we do, uh, at least at one point in our life, perhaps when we've thought that or said that, we, we do kind of have a little bit of, of arrogance ourselves when it comes to our own nation. But what is the reality of it? The reality of it is, is that God doesn't approve of any, any wickedness, any unrighteousness, any evil. And the fact that he uses one evil nation to judge another, he can do that. Can anyone really say to the Lord, we don't deserve anything that you bring about in our life. Even as believers, can we say that you're, you're being unjust? No. If God allows such things to come about in our life or even in our own nation, we deserve so much more. But the great hope in Christ is we're going to be delivered from the wrath of God. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. 
Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? They're going to be dominating the people of God. You've made them like, you've made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them. The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. God is going to allow this nation to dominate the covenant people of God in order to chastise them, in order to correct them. And what is the correction for? It is, it is because of their wickedness and it is because of their unfaithfulness, but in correction and in chastising, it is for them to look back upon the Lord. That's the point. And you see that, you see that cycle in the book of Judges. The people start off well, they're faithful to the Lord, they fall into idolatry, the Lord allows another nation to come and conquer them, and then sometime later they pray unto the Lord, we have sinned against you, deliver us. The chastening is for the purpose for them to look back upon the Lord. This is a nation that doesn't spare any. This is a nation that is wicked, a nation that dominates, they're merciless, This is a wicked, idolatrous nation. They're going to receive wealth. They're going to receive prosperity from them taking Israel, Judah rather. They're going to believe themselves to be more superior than the covenant people of God. And as we read of in the book of Daniel, because we went through Daniel and we see how the Babylonians were viewing the people of God. They took all the things from the temple and they put it in their treasury. We've conquered their God. They'll think themselves more superior. How can, how can he do this? And that's the prophet's question. You know, sometimes it seems as if when we're praying and we're, we're praying unto the Lord and we talk about how prayer often changes us as we're praying. Because as we are praying and we're recounting the majesty and the glory and, and the character of God and the very nature of God, it seems to bring some comfort to our hearts. And then there's times in which sometimes we pray and it seems the, the anxiety, if you want to call it that, or what's the disturbing of our souls sometimes intensifies. And that's what's happening to the prophet. He's been crying out to the Lord. He's been crying out. His soul is disturbed within him. And then he gets the answer. And then it's even more disturbing for him. And that's why as he is questioning the very character of God, we'll read later that he's going to go sit in the tower and he's going to wait for the Lord to answer him. In fact, he says, I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. He already knows that he's in the wrong. But because of everything that is happening, he still asks the questions because he doesn't understand. But everything that the Lord is doing, even in that day, that he did do in that day, was absolutely consistent with his just and righteous nature. He didn't approve of the evil that was occurring because he's going to punish him for it. But at the very same time, 
in order to chastise his own people, he allowed the wicked to prosper for a time, to dominate for a time, before he then acted in order to bring his people back and his people to look to him. You know, after you have the Babylonian captivity, when Israel or when Judah returns back to the land, they are still unfaithful to the Lord as they begin to pay attention to their own lives and and the prophets have to rebuke them as they did, uh, as they were unfaithful to the Lord and they began to intermarry with with, uh, the enemies of, of God. They did do things like that. But you know the very thing that they didn't do when they returned from captivity? They didn't commit idolatry. They didn't serve other gods like they did before. Because God had chastised them in such a severe way that what he intended to occur, occurred. No longer did they seek after other gods. They had other problems, yes. Because we're all prone to wonder, and so were they. But the intent on God's part in doing this very thing, or even in any nation in which his people are there. Anything that occurs within the lives of his people is intended for them to continually look unto him and to trust in him and to have confidence in him and to understand, O Lord, as it seems evil is prospering, I know you are working a work in my day. I don't have to continually look forward to some future thing and see if the Lord's going to work then and try to put all my hope into a future prophecy of something. I can look in my own day and say, Oh Lord, you are working in my day. You are actively accomplishing everything that you intend to do. And oh Lord, help me to be confident in you. Allow my trust in you to grow. And my resolve to be in walking before you in a manner pleasing to you, intensify my commitment to you. Because that's what we should be praying. That's the intent of things that are like are going on in our own nation. How can this be? Well, one, I mean, and we'll get into this later on in, in Romans 1, but I mean, if you look at the things that are occurring in our own nation, what is it? It's a judgment of God. It is consistent with everything that he says in Romans 1 when he gives them over to a depraved mind, when he hands them over, and the degradation that occurs thereafter to where you get to the end of Romans 1 and you have even those who give approval to the things that are being done of all the sexual immoralities. This is God judging a nation. And this is consistent with what he's doing now. God is judging a nation. What could be the intent then? Is something great going to happen, a big revival? I have no idea. Only that's known in the mind of God, but it can cause a revival to the people of God who are already here. Revival is to be revived. Stop being at ease in Zion and look unto the Lord your God. And trust and walk justly before your God. That's why this this particular book is, again, so timely, so encouraging. 
for the people of God because we see what the prophet and the righteous are enduring even among the wicked people, wicked covenant people of God. And yet there is hope here. And there is comfort that God is working. Do you believe that? Even now, as you see the things that are going on, do you think that God is working or do you think that the enemy is gaining a foothold? Because that's what some people believe. As if God could be thwarted by the enemy. The devil's gaining a foothold. Oh, the devil's getting... He's gaining, gaining more, more land or more people. Or... How about we just understand that, first off, that Satan is God's devil. Satan will bring about whatever God intends. But whether you look at it as an attack of the enemy or you recognize that it is from the sovereign hand of God, the the outcome is the same because we know whatever Satan does is allowed by his creator. And especially in times in which his people suffer or have going through pain or anxiety or anything else because of the wickedness of their day, he's actively working and he is calling upon us to get our attention. Look unto me, he says, and observe. You're not going to believe what I'm doing. Because you can't see it. Our generation may not see it. Perhaps the next generation will. Who knows? We don't know what is coming, but God is preparing something. And God will accomplish good for his people in whatever way he sees fit. So I pray as we work our way through this, uh, that all of us will be encouraged by this, this small book here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you so much uh, for the great encouragement that we receive. Uh, We are truly, Father, amazed at how you work within history. And I pray, Father, that you would indeed console us and, and help us, Lord, to look upon you to recognize this reality that you are at work. The enemy is not gaining a foothold. The enemy is not thwarting your will. You are doing everything that you intend to do. For none are like you. You are the Almighty. You are the Rock. You are the existing one. You are the one who has all strength and power. Father, increase our trust in you our love for you, our commitment to you. And Father, put us to work. Move within our hearts, Father, to labor, to truly labor on behalf of our God. We pray that you would use us as instruments in your hand. Father, we we thank you again for calling us, for saving us, bringing us into your favor that you don't see our sin. Now you see the righteousness of your son. Thank you for that great love. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.